Welcome to Out of Rotation, volleyball talk for players, coaches, and fans. Presented by the American Volleyball Network. Here's your host, Dan Meskin. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I am recording this live from the Denver airport. I'm on about a two-hour layover here on my way back from the USA Women's National Team Open Tryout. Really cool experience out there if you're not familiar with it. In Colorado Springs, colleges from all over the country send their athletes to compete and try out and they uh, pretty much do three days of training. Karch Karai runs it all. I was fortunate enough to be a court coach uh, for that program that they ran and it was a really cool experience for the athletes that we sent out there and everybody else that we worked with there. But uh, like I said, I got a, a few minutes here that I wanted to get this podcast out. I've got some old podcasts, kind of I call it from the vault that I've done within the last year that are waiting to be released. And the one I want to release today is a conversation I had with Alyssa D'Erico. A couple of interesting things with Alyssa, if you're not familiar with her. One, as a player, she's accomplished something that I don't know is going to be uh, done anytime, maybe ever again. She was a four-time national champion with Penn State. She got to play with legendary uh, Russ Rose or four legendary Russ Rose. And that's the first thing that we talk about in this conversation because uh, really I don't know Russ all that well. So I was very curious about him as a coach, what it was like to play for him. But more importantly, why I wanted to connect with Alyssa is it's recruiting season right now. And I think Alyssa, over the last 10 years, has solidified herself as one of the best college recruiters in the country. Currently the associate head coach at Utah, um, but has been at Dayton, was at Louisville, where I'm at currently. Um, So she's really recruited all over the country. And I think she just has a fantastic recruiting eye. So um, great time of year to release this because, again, the Division I recruiting calendar just opened up. So we're all hitting the road, doing a lot of recruiting. And, you know, for me, the reason I did this podcast, one of many, is that I wanted to be able to connect with great people that are doing things at a high level that I want to improve on. I know that recruiting for me is something that I probably need to improve and need to develop my recruiting eye. And I thought, what better person to uh, talk to about that than Alyssa? So you get to listen in on a conversation where we talk about a great playing career that's been followed up by a really impressive coaching career that's still going. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Alyssa Dierko. So what was your uh, what was your first interaction with Russ Rose, head coach of Penn State? You have to remember that one, right? Did he call you? Because that was back when you were probably getting recruited when like maybe you got a call in like eight, or you called them like in eighth grade or freshman yeah. year. And we'll talk about recruiting at the end and how the rules have changed. But do you remember your first interaction with Russ? Were you just like, like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was pretty overwhelmed. Um, I, it was at camp. I think it was my eighth grade year. Um, I had already had like Mike Shaw was the assistant at the time. Um, and he had come and watched me play um, in some tournaments. It might have actually been after my freshman year. I think it was after my freshman year um, because I had switched clubs. But anyways, I went to camp that summer and I had this like pink tank top that I thought was the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Um, And we they had this like four on four tournament at camp every year that you got to make your own teams and they would play the tournament. Um, And usually there would be committed recruits there playing as well, which I didn't really know until I went to camp. Um, And so the team of committed recruits uh, played against me and some of my club teammates Um, and we actually beat them. Uh, and he called me pinky and I was like, what, like, why are you calling me pinky? But it's because of the stupid pink tank top that I had on. Um, but he was like, pinky, you got some spark to you. Don't you like said something like classic Russ. And I was like, 
is he talking to me? Like <laughs> what? Um, but yeah, no, I, I remember those camps and just the sweaty gym and the grind of it. Um, and definitely fell in love with the culture of what Penn state was from the very beginning for sure. Well, I want to get into those years when you talk about fell in love with the culture. I think, you know, when you're looking at a school and you are on the outside in, you have an idea of what the culture is and then you're there and you find out what it really is because again, the recruiting process is very different than the the playing experience. So what was that culture in your eyes? And then when you got there, how did that either change or just solidify what you saw? Yeah. Um, I grew up in a really small town and played for some really hard like coaches and my mom was really strict. So I think for me, it was always about kind of just that blue collar mentality and, and working hard. And I remember doing, you know, jump roping in my garage to try and get my vertical up and driveway sprints when I was 14, cause I needed to get faster. And, um, so all the things that I heard about Penn state from people and about what Russ was about, um, was about just the grind and the work and, and how hard it is to play for him. And I was always somebody that wanted to be challenged and wanted to be pushed. So that instantly attracted me to it. Um, and then when I actually got there and got recruited, um, I saw the players and met the players and got to talk to them. Um, and they kind of solidified how hard it was to play for him um, and how difficult it was and how, um, you know, how much he pushed them. So then I got to see a little bit of kind of his, you know, training, teaching style and and how he is blunt and, and brutal, uh, but honest. Um, and as soon as I was pushed in those ways. And I, I saw it from him and how he was going to demand excellence every single day and keep raising the bar. Um, then I was hooked. Um, I, I wanted to be pushed and challenged and um, people, I remember Jim Stone on my Ohio state visit. Um, he was shocked. He asked me what I wanted out of my college experience. And I was like, I want to win a national championship. And he was like, Okay, like not many kids say that. Uh, most of them talk about how they want to win a national championship um, after they get a scholarship. <laughs> uh, I was like, no, it's not about it's not about the scholarship for me. Like, I I want to go somewhere that I have the opportunity to compete, and I have the opportunity to compete for a national championship. Um, so I think I was really drawn into kind of that that culture, that mindset of you know we're every single day we're we're competing for something at the end of the season, um, but it's a year long grind to get there. So you talked about I want to win a national championship. We're going to talk more in depth on on the, you won four of them, so you accomplished your goal <laughs> four times. Um, but I still want to go a little bit on, on Russ here because it's so interesting as a player who was so successful there, playing for Russ, the assistants that were there. You, the words you described Russ was uh, challenging, hard, difficult, difficult to play for, all that. That's what the girls were telling you. So now you're on the coaching side. So when you look back on that and you analyze, you go, oh, there was a method to the madness or, oh, that made sense that they were doing that. Looking back from a coach's lens, how were they able to do that so well and demand so much, but keep that culture? For sure. Um, I think Russ is who he is uh, and he's consistent. So I think um, I've always thought about you know, authenticity in coaching, um, that you have to be authentic to who you are. So I think it's really hard, um, to, you know, be tough and be, um, you know, challenging and, and hard if that's not your natural instinct. Um, I think kids see through that. Um, and I think we always knew who Russ was going to be. Um, so once you knew that and you walked into the gym, you, you had, kind of an idea of what to expect every single day. Um, I do think he did a really good job of bringing in people that offset him and balanced him. Um, Salima is one of the happiest, positive, 
explanatory, um, authentic human beings. Um, and I had her for two years. Um, Kalina, um, I had for my second two years. Um, and those were kind of my two like position coaches that I, I dealt with in my four years. Um, and Kalina wasn't as bubbly, but she was also very good at understanding and seeing players and their struggles that they were going through. So she would grab me. Um, she was not super like Salima-esque in terms of like, she's going to like pat you on the back and joke around and get you to laugh. Um, but she was really good at still balancing out Russ in her own way. So I think um, both of them did an unbelievable job of of creating the balance to Russ of how hard he is and understanding um, but they both did it by knowing their players and noticing what they needed. Um, and then again, I think being authentic to who they are. So Kalina, you know, would grab me and, you know, I shed plenty of tears in college. I think it's, it's a part of, it's a part of your career. It's a part of life. Um, it's hard. Uh, but I think both of them found ways that were authentic to who they were to, to really help players get through the tough moments and, and make sure that they, had kind of a pulse and a beat of what was going on with the people that they were in charge of. Yeah, so balancing the staff. And for those that might be new following volleyball, we're talking about Salima Rockwell, current head coach at Notre Dame, and Kalina Davidson, who's currently coaching club in Colorado right now. So um, so sticking on the Penn State days, because I'm just I'm always so intrigued there. That was kind of my introduction into coaching. And I was at Nebraska at the time, and we transitioned to the Big Ten, and then we had some battles with Penn State. And there's just this aura about your – era at Penn State. Obviously, four national titles in four years. I'm sure you get asked about it all the time. Uh, real quick, I feel like Russ's three-a-days are like these. this thing that like it, it, it almost lives like in this fantasy world of like, did that really happen or how were those? Because I don't think that's happening anymore. Um, what's the truth behind the three-a-days? You know, or let's do this. I'm a freshman coming in and you're a, a junior, a senior, and you're like, hey, tomorrow's the first three a day. This is Russ's three a day. So I'm like, I don't know what to expect. How are you preparing me for it? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, I'm going to, I'm going to break the, the Penn state myth in some form or fashion. A few of the years that I was there, we did not have three days. Whoa, um, whoa, 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 whoa. That, see that, see, all right. Now it's coming full circle. Now it makes some sense. These three a days, yeah. I'm telling you, they, they like throughout the country, people talk about them. Like what, what the heck are these things? They're real. They happen. Um, they they just didn't happen as much during my like four years as what they did before and after. So I think, again, Russ is really, really good at knowing his teams and knowing where they are, um, where they can be, um, you know, where he needs to get them to. And I think a couple of the years that we were there, um, he knew that we had all the right pieces. He also knew that we didn't have any depth. So if we lost uh, Megan Hodge, if we lost uh, Krista Harmato, if we lost uh, Alicia Glass, our team changed drastically in terms of the depth um, that the second man up was in some of those all-American caliber positions. Um, so I think for a couple of the years, he was more concerned um, about just maintaining the, through the longevity of the whole season. Um, then he was about really challenging us because he knew that we were in a pretty good mental space. Now, the two-a-days were still tough. Um, we we were in the gym for six, seven hours a day for two-a-days, which, you know, if you break up two-hour practice, two-hour practice, two-hour practice, that easily could be a three-a-day. just depends on how long you go. Um, and he still found ways to challenge us and keep us on our toes. I know he he definitely knew, though, that we needed to be – healthy and fresh at the end of the season. Um, but I think teams that need, you know, the culture and the identity of Penn State um, 
get more three days. Um, you know, my freshman year, we had more, more three days than we did my sophomore year. Uh, my junior year, I don't think sophomore and junior year, I don't think we had maybe more than like two or three and then senior year, same thing, like two or three. Um, and then I think after I graduated, they went back to a lot more three days. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it, again, he, he bases that on what he knows the team needs. Um, you know, are they a really close knit tight team? Um, that is, you know, on track on a mission or are they a team that maybe needs a little bit more, um, bonding and, and identity and culture and grit and toughness. Um, I think he does a really good job of, of balancing those things, but they're real. Um, they're hard. Um, you know, even when you think that you're going to get a little bit of a break, I'll never forget. We asked for a session. Uh, we were crushed at one point in one of the preseasons. Um, and we asked for a, a morning session off, uh, which takes a lot of guts to go ask Russ for a morning session off. And he was like, yep, sounds good. You know, I just got to get through what I need to get through in the evening sessions. We were like, okay, sounds good. Uh, I think our evening practice was about four and a half, five hours. Um, so we basically took yeah. the morning session and combined it with the evening session and we were in the gym for forever. So, um, <laughs> You know, there were there were moments that you, you had to just put your head down and do the work and um, get through it. But yeah, he uh, he was really good at for sure understanding the the heartbeat and the pulse of what the team needed season to season. And and you know, I think within each season, from preseason to pre conference to conference to postseason, um, of understanding where the team was and what we needed. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned a couple pretty phenomenal players that were there, and there were more than just them. You mentioned Krista Harmato and Megan Hodge. Um, of all the players you played with there, like I think about some of the great players that I I was able to play with. They just had an aura about them on the court, or you'd almost be in awe sometimes of the things that they could do, and you it was hard to almost focus on your task. Who sticks out in that regard, and what made them so special? Yeah, uh, I would probably say. Krista Harmato um, would be like number one on that list for me. And then I think uh, Nicole Fawcett um, would be number two on that list for me. Krista, um, for as athletically gifted as she was, was one of the hardest working, most genuine, compassionate, thoughtful teammates that you could ask for. Um, my freshman year, she was a junior. Um, and, you know, I, I think some of the things that upperclassmen do um, or don't do sometimes often get overlooked. Um, but when I, when I was a junior, I understood how big of an impact she had on me. So she would come to the freshman dorms uh, and take the freshmen out to lunch and ask if we needed help moving in or um, little things like that. And not, not because Russ told her to, I mean, none of the other upperclassmen were doing that or offering that or coming to spend time with us or checking in on how we were doing. She was doing it because she genuinely wanted to have connections with us as freshmen um, and check in and, and see how we were doing. So I think just as a leader, um, as, you know, a hard worker, she was constantly working on her craft um, and she was having fun doing it. Like, I think there's people that are get in the gym and grind. Um, but I mean, she, her and Alicia would go in the gym for, you know, 20, 30 minutes in the summer and work on like just different sets and trying new things, like taking a step to the B and running a one foot a, like they're, they're doing all sorts of fun stuff, but still working, uh, mm -hmm. and being diligent. So she set in a, a really big example for me of kind of the type of leader that I wanted to be, um, and the type of teammate that I wanted to be and the type of competitor that I wanted to be. Um, and then Nick, I think just 
she was who she was. She was sarcastic and goofy, but she still, um, you know, was competitive. Uh, there are moments that if you go back and watch some matches, um, she is intense. Um, she wants to win. Um, but she also found the balance um, of keeping it, you know, lighthearted in moments that we needed it. Um, and she, of all the people that I played with, probably had the best rapport with Russ um, of being able to joke around with him and, you know, kind of push the buttons a little bit with him um, to kind of see where he was and, and get a good gauge. Um, so I think I learned a lot from both of them. Um, I learned, you know, about creating a connection with the head coach uh, from Nick because my freshman year, I was scared to death of going into Russ's office. Um, but I saw that in her. And then from Krista, I saw a lot of just the the work ethic and the teammate and the leadership connection that she had uh, as a captain yeah. of the team. So and and by Nick, we're talking about Nicole Fawcett, current head or current assistant coach at the Ohio yeah. State University. And we actually yes. played them this spring. And you're talking about the competitiveness and all that. That's that's very much still there. I noticed her on the sideline there. She's still pretty intense. Um, oh yeah. Well, last thing on kind of your playing career, and then I want to shift over to kind of a, more of a coaching uh, focus here. But you were able to play three years overseas. Um, so, you know, there's probably some athletes who are about to embark on that journey, and they're in the, they're in the middle of it. You played for three years, and now you've been in coaching for a number of years. Looking back on that experience, what would be your advice for somebody who's either thinking about going overseas or currently finds themselves playing overseas? Because until you really do it, I feel like it's 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 a very unique experience to say the least. So what would be your advice yeah. for somebody who's thinking about it or maybe is in the midst of playing overseas? Yeah. Um, I think there's probably three big takeaways when I think back at being overseas. Um, first, an appreciation for how good NCAA athletes have it. Um, 100%. I think that professional volleyball overseas is um, built up to be this like big thing because you see the big time players playing at the big clubs and you know that's kind of all you hear about and that's not the holistic picture of professional volleyball overseas. Um, and the NCAA is pretty much professional volleyball. Um, you know, the way that you get treated, uh, the way that you're supported with athletic trainers, doctors, strength coaches, um, you know, sports psychologists, nutritionists, um, there's so many levels and factors of what the NCAA, um, has now provided for student athletes. Um, even from when I played till now there's more. Um, but I didn't quite realize how, fortunate and lucky we were um, in the NCAA to, to have the treatment that we did and have the the level and caliber of play. So um, that would be my, my first one. I like realized pretty quickly, like, oh, we don't have a full-time athletic trainer. Like this is interesting. <laughs> so I don't get to go to treatment every day and get the feel good massage and like <laughs> get everything fixed. It's great. Um, the second would be uh, do it a hundred percent. I would never ever say that I regret my experience um, in any of the three seasons that I had um, just culturally getting to go experience a different country, a different culture, um, expose yourself to different styles of volleyball, different types of teaching, different types of play. Um, I absolutely loved my experience uh, in all three places for, for three very different reasons. Um, and then the third one would be for me, um, is just kind of don't be afraid to explore while you're there. Um, you know, I now being in uh, collegiate coaching, um, you don't get as much free time to go travel and do things. And um, if if I did have one regret in my time there, it would be that I wish that I would have traveled more. And I traveled a lot. I got to go see a lot of things. But 
um, just the ease of exploring and, and enjoying it while you can and while you're over there um, is something that I think is a huge perk um, of, of the time that you get to spend overseas. Uh, but yeah, I think the play is different for me because I played at such a high level here. Um, and then the culture was amazing to experience. And for sure, I wish I would have traveled more because now I don't get as many opportunities to get back over to Europe and, and hop, skip and jump around a little bit. I mean, you say that now, but it's like you have a Sunday off and all you want to do is like sit on the couch and you're like, I wish I would have gone out and saw, you know, some landmark or whatever. But I think I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. I look back on some experiences like that, too. And I'm like, I know I was tired, but I should have done something. All right, so switching over to your coaching career here, um, we'll start with Louisville. So uh, 2015, you guys win the ACC. I believe that's the first year Louisville was ever in the ACC, working with Ann Cordes, who's now at Kiva. Um, talk me through a little bit. I want to talk about that 2015 season because I'm currently at Louisville. I walk in, I see that 2015 banner every day, and it's super impressive. Very first year in the league, moving from, I think it was at the AAC, or the, we went back and forth at Louisville to a couple yep. different conferences on the transition. Very first year there, what sticks out? How were you guys able to have such a magical season in 2015? Yeah, I think um, probably two things stand out. Um, we had a gnarly competitor and a setter. <laughs> um, I don't know still to this day that I've coached uh, a setter maybe one has been like on par with her competitiveness but katie george was one of the most competitive people that i've ever been around in a gym um in that position and you bring up katie george she's currently working with espn you'll see her at, you know college football playoff and i mean she's on all the time she's doing great things right now but when you say yeah. oh, man what a competitor what's an example of that is that something she turned on turned off because i've never seen her play i've only seen her off the court is that just she was 24-7? What stuck out for I'm a setter right now and I'm listening to this. Okay, I want to be like that. What's an example of that? Yeah, no, it was constant. Um, you know, we could be doing a cross-court pepper drill. We could be doing a defensive drill. Uh, and if she didn't do it perfect or didn't win the drill, um, you know, it was almost like temper tantrum sometimes <laughs> that you could tell that she was so frustrated and so mad that she didn't win. I mean, she was arguing for points, fighting for points, um, you know, just constant. It didn't matter if she was working on setting or not, um, but she was constantly trying to find, find ways to win. Um, she was super strategic, um, really, really bright as well. Um, so she, you know, thought through the game and had a great IQ. Um, you know, she would say this as well. She wasn't like, the most athletic setter in the ACC by any means, um, but she was going to do whatever it took um, to win and and win at everything. You know, the defensive drills were just as important for her to win as it was for her um, to win, you know, if we were doing 5v6 or something else. Um, so she, she just constantly was wired that way. And she always said that it was because of her two older brothers um, that she grew up playing against them and they never let her win. <laughs> so she was constantly fighting to win. Um, and it just was kind of a, ingrained in her from, from a young age. Um, so I think, you know, having a, your alpha, uh, if you have, you know, a, a word to describe it, have your alpha be that competitive, but also have it be somebody that has the ability to impact the game in as big of a way as a setter does, um, I think always leads to good things. Um, so she, you know, might, again, might not have been the most polished or the best technically trained setter, um, but she was going to find ways to win when it mattered. Um, so I think that's the starting point for that team that season for me. 
Um, and then I think, you know, you add on an Aaron Fairs who transferred in um, that season and she has a cannon attached to her arm. Still does. Um, we just played him at the AU Pro. I mean, that girl, literally, I had to play in practice that year because I had just finished playing pro and I was like, I don't want to be behind one of those swings. <laughs> like, there's just a lot of heat on that thing. Um, but it, I mean, she just, she knew how to generate points in a lot of, you know, off kilter ways. Like there were some swings that I'm like, I wouldn't be swinging at that ball, but she's swinging for the fences and she had a lot of big matches for us and big swings and big moments. Um, and she also was a super competitor too. You know, I think it showed up differently for her um, than it did for Katie, but she was also, you know, a super competitor. So I think we had, you know, a, a horse that we could ride in terms of big moments for big swings. Um, but then we also had kind of the person that was driving the ship and, and, you know, making the right choices in the right moments and, and influencing those around her to, to win big matches. Um, and last thing on Louisville, I have to I have to bring it up because I just thought of it. It's her birthday today. I just texted her before we got on the podcast here. Claire Chasse, when I got to Louisville yep. in 2017, she was already committed. So so we had you know recruits committed when we came in. And Danny Busboom Kelly, our head coach, talks about Ann Cordes in particular, almost the way we talk about Russ's three days. She talks about her as a recruiter. Like Ann was just this fantastic yep. recruiter, had this great eye. She was super competitive about it. So the re recruits that were committed were, you know, you and Ann and the previous staff. Was there something you guys pegged about Claire Chasse? Because, again, she was like an unranked recruit who just last year was a first-team All-American. I'm just so intrigued what sticks out or from your memory of that. We're going back, you know, plenty of years now when we're recruiting her. But did anything stick out with that player right. in particular of, like, I love this personality trader. I love this movement she makes that you thought – I mean, clearly, I don't know if you thought you could be a first-team All-American, but there was something there that nope. there was a pretty good potential. Is there anything you saw with her that you continue to see with recruits that you're like, I love when they do this? Yeah. Um, Claire, I think the first thing that stood out when um, I watched her, I remember watching her, it was uh, when the Great Lakes Power League was still a thing. Um, her team was playing there, and I think the the first thing that stood out was just how quick she was off the ground. Um, you know, she was a pretty springy athlete, um, pretty wiry, um, just fast twitch. Uh, and she was thick thin. Um, she had no, no, nothing to her yet. Um, and I think the other thing that, you know, kind of stood out is she was able to generate power still without having a ton of muscle yet. Um, which usually means that there's some technical things that match up that she's doing well uh, yeah. in order to be able to generate some heat and some power um, without really having any muscular development yet. Um, so I think her fast twitchness was, was always, you know, super attractive. She was so quick off the ground. Um, she had the ability to make um, quick lateral decisions and moves and um, be pretty explosive. Um and then I think just, again, her ability with her arm to, to generate some power without really having any development yet um, were, were two things. She was super fun personality-wise on the court. Um, I always, when I when I watch people, I'm like, would I want to play with them or not? Because yeah. I, I want to have people in the gym, no matter what level I'm coaching, that are enjoyable to be around um, for whatever reason. It, it could be they're a gnarly competitor. It could be that they're super fun. It could be that you know, they understand teammates and they're, they're really caring about teammates, right? There's different things that require the team to be whole and be complete. But I think at the end of the day, if I can answer the question that, yeah, I would enjoy playing with her. 
um, that's a good question to have a yes, yes answer to in terms of the recruiting world. And she had such a fun personality on the court when she came to camp in the summer, we all loved coaching her. Um, she just was, was kind of that kid that brightened up, brightened up everybody around her. Um, and then obviously yeah, on the physical traits and, and that's an easy yes to say, okay, that's a kid that we want to recruit. Well, if I haven't said it yet, thank you for that recruit. She's pretty unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, like I said, when we got here, our head coach, DBK, was like, you know, I trust Ann and Ann's eye, and there's something with it. Because, again, she was not a ranked recruit. And I think you yeah. kind of nailed that, too, because she always was one of the hardest hitters in the gym. And then as she started to get stronger and in college, you know, those things – you jump a little higher, you get a little stronger. I mean, she just went all world, but I don't, I don't know if anybody, yeah. any of us could have pegged the transition of being unranked to a first team all American. I mean, there's some pretty unique qualities there for a, an athlete to do that. So let's get into your Dayton years here real quick. So uh, interesting in the A-10. So you won the regular season twice and you won the conference tournament four times. So my first question when I see that is, you know, the A-10 has been sometimes a multi-bid league. Sometimes it's okay, maybe just the top two. So the pressure that mounts with winning that automatic berth into the tournament in the conference tournament, uh, I'm always intrigued by how coaches deal with their team and pressure and because that week is massive to win the conference tournament because you can maybe have a great regular season. You crushed everybody, but maybe your RPI is not there and you feel like, man, we better win this tournament. We at least need to get to the finals or we're not going to make the NCAA tournament. Or maybe you didn't have a great regular season, but you got yourself into the conference tournament. Now you got a shot to get in the NCAA tournament. I'm so intrigued because at the ACC, we don't have a conference tournament. And then back when I was at Nebraska, we didn't have yeah. a conference tournament. So I've never experienced it. What's that like from a coaching perspective? How do you deal with the mentality of, we all know this is a really big deal, but do we talk about this is a really big deal? How do you deal with that? Yeah, um, I think Tim always was great. You know, he wanted the team to know that we had two ways in. So, and that's Tim Horsman, the, the head coach at Dayton. And when you talk about two ways in, is that something that he's talking about from preseason? Or are you starting to talk about halfway through the season? When does he start bringing up, hey, we have two ways to get in the, into the dance? Yeah, he's talking about it before we start the season. Because um, he wants he wants the girls to understand why we schedule so tough in pre-conference. Um, and why we're bringing in the teams that we're bringing into play uh, in pre-conference. Um, you know, if we have one or two wins, um, against some pretty good teams, uh, and then, you know, have some, some really good solid wins in there as well. Um, our RPI should be in the range that we're going to get in at large, um, regardless of what happens at the end of the year. So that's always the goal. Um, so that once we get into that, you know, week of conference tournament, that there's not that stress and pressure load that the players have to deal with, or that we have to deal with quite honestly, because, you know, we're, we're dealing with the same stresses too, of, we want to compete in the NCAA tournament. Um, but yeah, ideally we want to know going, you know, into the A-10 tournament that we have uh, a ticket punched regardless. Um, I think of the four years we won the conference tournament, I think only two of those years did we have a very, very like legitimate shot. I think we were 28 RPI one year and then like 36 RPI the other year um, that we knew regardless, like we should be in um, even if we lose in the finals. Now, if we lost before the finals, probably not. Um, but if we get to the finals, we're good. Um, I do think that that week is something that they're preparing for the whole year. So they have um, at Dayton, a, a mental performance coach that works with them year round um, and meets with them and talks to them. And um, so I think, you know, dealing with the press pressure and stresses of being a collegiate athlete uh, is something that they're, 
you know, constantly working through and working on and, and being the best team that we can be by the time we get to the tournament is always the goal. Um, so I think going into that week for us, it's, you know, we're, we're constantly preaching to them that we're going to be the most prepared. We're going to scout. We're going to prepare you guys with everything that we can, um, you know, in practice, going through walkthroughs, video, uh, you know, sessions with the players positionally, um, all the different things to, to make sure that they feel the most prepared um, and then just let them go play. Um, you know, we're not, we're not talking about if we lose this, we, we don't have a way in. Um, we, we never mentioned RPI going into it. Some of the girls that are super competitive would go look at our RPI before the tournament. Um, but that wasn't coming from us. So we weren't yeah. telling them like we're in regardless um, or we have to win. We just wanted them to take it one match at a time, one point at a time, one set at a time. Um, and use the things that they had used all season long to to win sets, win matches, win points um, to get us to where we wanted to be. But I think they felt the most prepared. They knew that we were, um, you know, over prepared and and ready to go win against whoever was on the other side. Gotcha. Um, well, let's fast forward through Dayton and get to where you're currently at. You have nothing yeah. on the wall in your office as we sit here on zoom so you've been at utah it's all behind me okay it's, it's all behind, behind you uh you've been at utah about three months now give or take yeah. a lot of recruiting a lot of time on the road uh before we get into kind of the experience so far you know beth lanier um i don't know her personally but she's got a great volleyball book out and she's kind of revered throughout the country as you know obviously one of the best coaches in the country she saw utah go from a mid-major into the pac-12 and they've done fantastic there what attracted you about the job at Utah or Beth in particular? Yeah, um, I think I knew if I wasn't, you know, going to go take a head coaching job, um, the only assistant coaching or associate head coaching positions that I really uh, would want to take would be someplace that I could go and I could learn from somebody that has done it and, you know, has had success. Um, somebody that is respected and trustworthy and, um, you know, has that network built? Because um, at the end of the day, I do want to be a head coach. That's I shared that with Beth when I interviewed here. Um, that's where I would love to to be uh, in my career. And so I think she has exactly what you said, like built this program, you know, kind of from the ground up. And how, how long has she been there? I wanted to, I, I didn't research that. I guess I did my research on you before, but I mean, tw pl over yeah. 20 years, 30, 34 years, 34 years. Wow. Continue yep. on about, again, you know, Beth or what attracted you to the job, you know, why, why you're loving yep. Utah. So I think for me, um, you know, the opportunities that had come up before um, location has always been something that I didn't think mattered for me until I had other job opportunities. And I was like, as a young adult, do I want to live in that location? Um, you know, I don't have a family right now. I love to travel. Um, you know, I love doing outdoor activities. So there were some jobs that came up that I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know that I could see myself living there and loving it for the little bit of downtime that we get. Like, do I want to, to spend it there? And if I don't, do I have the ability to travel from there to somewhere else easily? Um, so there's some college coaching jobs that those things don't apply. Um, you know, I love, I think being from a small town, I love being in a bigger city um, or close to a bigger city that there's a lot more to do because I grew up in such a small town that now I appreciate having more to do. Um, 
So I think that there was a lot of pluses. Beth was obviously a huge draw for me of learning from her and, you know, kind of seeing how she's built this program into what it is, um, you know, of being in Sweet 16s and, and having the ability to compete on the national stage year in and year out. Um, so that was for sure a huge draw. But then I think, you know, you look at Salt Lake City and it's like, there's mountains all around it. I snowboard, I hike, I kayak, I paddleboard. Um, you know, I love doing outdoorsy stuff. And there are, I think, five national parks in Utah. Um, and there's literally mountains 30 minutes from campus that I can go snowboard and go hike and do whatever. Awesome. Um, so I think that there was a lot of personal draws. Um, and then there was obviously the professional piece too, that I get to be here and learn from somebody that has really, you know, again, built the program from the ground up into what it is and um, knows kind of what it takes to, to build a winning program and continue it for many years. Um, you know, she's found a way to win in every conference she's been in. Um, and, and obviously on the national stage too, has built a program that is widely respected across the country. Yeah. And, and so I want to talk because of all the people I've talked to on this podcast, me and you can probably vibe the most on this. We're both sitting as assistant coaches or associate head coach, whatever that means. Um, and you said, you know, I want to be a head coach. I'm not, I, I've been a division two head coach. You know, I, I haven't really made the jump on the big D one thing and I'm kind of on the fence about it too. Like I really dig what I'm doing now, but I'm just curious from you, you said, you know, I do want to do that, but you know, you took the associate head associate head job at, at Utah. So clearly there's like a list for you of like, you know, I want to do that, but I'm not, I don't have to do that right now. So what, what would it take for you to be like, that's a head coaching job that I want? Is it an opportunity to win right away? Like you said, is it location? You know, what would it do for yeah. you? Because again, I'm, I'm in this exploratory phase of like, I don't really know what it would do for me. You know, I don't know what it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, part of the other like piece of the puzzle that I think that I was missing, um, a lot of people had asked, like people are people in the coaching world that are sitting head coaches that, you know, are constantly getting phone calls about head coaching jobs. Um, they're like, Hey, like, you know, we think you'd be a great head coach. Do you want to be a power five head coach or not? Like, does that matter to you? Um, and I think being at Dayton, I had my eyes open to how great of an experience it can be at a major that is still able to compete and, and win and, and, you know, have great players, great connections. Um, but I hadn't really been at a power five since 2016. And so much has changed um, between, you know, Alston money and cost of attendance and NIL and all the developments that have happened in sports science and nutrition and data analytics and strength and conditioning. Um, there's so many things that have changed in just a short amount of time at the power five level that I was like, okay, I can't answer that question. <laughs> like I, I legitimately can't answer like, yes, I know I want to be a head coach at some point, but I don't know if I want to be a head coach at a power five or if I want to be a head coach at a mid major. And like, what ultimately is that goal? Like people are like, what's your dream job? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't have like a, this is the target. This is where I want to go. Um, so I think that was the other kind of missing piece for me of, I was either going to take a head coaching job, uh, from Dayton and, you know, probably get a good mid-major head coaching job, um, and try and see what I could do or go and be an associate head or an assistant at a power five to try and learn what does this world look like? How is it different? Um, you know, am, am I happier here versus out of mid-major? Um, you know, what, what are kind of the differences? So I think that's the other thing that I'm trying to learn here. 
um, is just kind of seeing, you know, what does it take? What are the differences? Are there, you know, massive differences or not? Um, and then what is that kind of ultimate end goal? Cause that's the answer that I don't have that people have been asking of, you know, where do you want to be? Yeah. Neither do I. I mean, you can't replace happiness. You're talking about, you got the mountains close right. by, you're learning from Beth and it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, head coaching is, it is what it is. It's like, I, I feel plenty happy as an assistant coach here. Like, you know, like yeah. you said, I mean, I, you were, I, I thought you might be a Dayton forever at one point. I was just like, <laughs> you know, cause you were pretty synonymous with Tim. I mean, Tim, T- Tim Horsman, the head coach at Dayton, how long has he been there? I mean, he's over 10 years, two different stints. Yeah. There. Yeah. So he, his first stint, I think was six years uh, and then second stint. Now he's going on nine. So 15, I think yeah. total. This and you were almost 15. there for, for six of them. So, I mean, I, yeah. I think a lot of people associated kind of you two together of like, you know, faces of the yeah. program. So um, it's weird to see in the Utah now. I got to get used to it. Only three months in. Um, hey, I'm so, still wearing red of some sort. <laughs> that's true. Gosh, I've had red my entire career. I was played Ohio State, me Nebraska, too. and then Louisville. I can't get away from it. So all the Penn Staters are hating on me because um, they're like red is like the anti like Ohio State yeah. is a rival for Penn State and Nebraska is a rival yeah. for Penn State and they're like, can you just get into a blue school, not a red school? I'm like, nope, Louisville, Dayton, Utah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm sticking with the red. Um, all right, so I want to shift gears and and finish our conversation with recruiting. And just get in the weeds on that. And as I get into that, we're going to touch a little bit on your coaching career as well. And if I if I found this correctly, I think you've coached three conference liberos of the year, one at uh, Louisville and then two at Dayton. Yep. So let's yep. just start recruiting-wise. You were a libero. Let's just start recruiting-wise. What do you look for in a libero? You've coached, again, three conference liberos of the year. So either what yep. made them so special or what separated them or what do you see in the recruiting process that you're like? Because I think liberos are the hardest – position to recruit by far they're serving so much harder in college what do you look for yeah yeah I think um so funny all three of them have been so different <laughs> we'll go through so them quickly then, because obviously I know Molly Sauer uh she was conference yep. of the year that was another player we inherited from, from you at Louisville so thank you yep. again yeah um so go once you go through uh, all three of them real quick yeah I, I think Molly unbelievable passer um her just touch, her feel, her IQ for reading servers, for taking up a ton of court space. Um, It was something that she just naturally did. Um, You know, she was effortless in her movement and serve receive and her touch. um, She took balls in so many different spots um, and none of it looked uncomfortable for her. Um, She never really got jerky or jabby or jumpy at all. Um, And it just was super smooth. So yeah, she was probably one of the best passers I've ever seen in person. And I don't know if you have or if anybody has seen the 2018 match against Illinois. It's in the second round. We lose, but she passes the entire court, the entire game. It's the most, it's one of the most unbelievable performances I've ever seen. Yep. If you haven't seen that, you got, yep. I mean, you've, you've coached her, so you've seen it. But if anybody hasn't, they have yeah. volumetrics access. 2018 at Illinois, Molly Sauer passing is, is something like I've never seen yeah. before. So Molly, obviously, yeah. amazing passer. So who else were the conference liberos yep. of the year? Uh, Margo Wolf, um, my first or second year at Dayton, um, also an unbelievable passer. Um, she was not quite as rangy as Molly, but she just had unbelievable touch. She was a kid that grew up, you know, playing in the gym from super young age, um, down in the Cincinnati area and played at a really good high school, Mount Notre Dame. And, 
you know, the, they're just the the private Catholic school grade kids coming all the way up through, uh, similar to Louisville. Like those kids are touching balls and doing reps um, and ball control and serve receive reps from when they're like seven, eight years old all, all the way through. So she just had unbelievable touch. Um, and she could pass in a two person and, and steal and snag. And she just, she wasn't quite as rangy, but same thing. Like she just, she could pass. Um, I think probably of, of all three, the, the combination of what I would like and what I would prefer, uh, would be Mara Collins. Um, you know, our last kid at Dayton, um, she was the ultimate competitor, gritty, tough, um, she's the kid flying into the bleachers, diving for balls, going to, you know, going all out. Um, passing wasn't necessarily always her like strongest suit. She, she literally used to joke about how she had to have like this alter ego, um, because she was so like high strung and wired and like, like go, go, go like motor all the time. Um, she had to find like her Zen when she was in service. So she had, she had like two different personalities. Like she would try and take a deep breath before, before serve receive just to like chill out and like let her arms hang a little bit and just like relax because she was so fiery and so competitive. Um, I mean, she, I, I remember playing against Wisconsin um, her senior year and Kelly Sheffield came over to Tim after and was like, your libero is like one of the best liberos that we've played against. Like she just is a spitfire and ran the court, ran our defenses told people where to go. Like she was the, the leader of that team. Um, so I think just personality wise, um, that's kind of where I gravitate to because that was me. <laughs> that yeah. was my, that was my personality on the court. Um, you know, I was fiery and competitive and telling people where to go and, and kind of running our defense, talking to blockers. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where I naturally gravitate towards when, when I watch liberos and, and what I ideally, love to combine you know the elite passer with the elite competitor and leader in that position if you're watching them recruiting wise what starts to tip the scales for a libero recruit again i think they're the hardest ones to decide when you want to have them enter your program and how to scholarship them or anything like that like liberos are just so hard there's so many of them that the level of play raises in college what starts to tip the scales is it is it intangibles? Is it you have to have them at camp? You have to have them on a visit? You have to get like, what is it with liberos that would get them over the hump where you're like, I have to have this kid on my team? A, the serve receive piece for sure. Um, you know, it's got to be there. I think everybody knows serve and pass is like the key to, to winning. Um, and it can't be understated um, in any way, shape or form. It just is what it is. Um, so I think serve receive is for sure something that it's got to be there. And I think depending upon, you know, club or high school and what you get to see them do, I think camp always helps with that because you get to like wreck them out and see them in repeated situations of over and over and over again. Can they sustain it? Um, You know, obviously we want really low error percentage with really high positive percentage too. So I think that's where seeing the reps consistently back to back to back versus you know, in a tournament setting or in a highlight reel setting is, is a little bit different. Um, and then the other piece for me, you know, the intangibles, um, once that they kind of check the box of, of the serve receive and, and the, the physical skill set, um, then again, it's, it's, you know, what I want to play with them. Yeah. I love that you keep going back to that. Would I like to play with yeah. them? That's something I find myself going, can can they play like if you describe man they can yeah. play that's that's kind of my thing but i like the would i want to be a teammate of them like would i want to 
pass next to them. I really like that. That's a, that's a really good question for people recruiting to ask themselves that I've probably heard before, but I haven't thought about in a very long time. Like I really like that. Um, well that moves me into uh, my next question on recruiting. And I think throughout the country and certainly, I mean, now you're moving to the the PAC 12, so you're kind of moving to a different area of the country, but geographically, I saw you out recruiting all the time the last six years with us both in the Midwest. And I think you're revered as one of the best recruiters in our area. Um, how do you start to develop a, that reputation? Obviously you got to get great recruits and you got to have great experience with those recruits bringing in. But then also I think people would say you have like a great recruiting eye, like, Oh, they found that player and I hadn't really heard of her. And then a year later, she's really good. And Oh, she's committed to at the time it was like Dayton. How do you develop a recruiting eye? I think for me, it's always come down to, again, like the, the just athleticism on the court. Like I want to see how they move. Um, is it hard for them to move or does it look easy? You know, is it, are they able to make that quick step play? And it's like, without even a thought, like they're just, they're there. Um, so the fast twitchness for me is always something that I'm trying to like see, like, you know, are they able to execute that? Well, let me, let me break that down real quick. Cause I'm curious about the fast twitch. Is that just with middles and outsides, do you love that in setters and liberos too? Because sometimes I see setters and liberos who aren't as fast twitch, but their game is so smooth. So would you would you yeah. categorize that more of like okay, our attackers and our you know big physical kids fast twitch, but then setters and bros, they're a whole different deal. I, I mean, yes and no. I think setters and bros, I, I would still want somebody that has the ability to have that first step. Russ always called it pop. Like he would always yell at me, and he's like, "You don't have enough pop." I'm like. What does that even mean? Like, I pinky in the pop. pinky in the tank top doesn't have enough pop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 no pop for pinky. Um, but yeah, I just I think still their ability, especially it's not as much a serve receive thing. I think for um, passers or or for liberos, um, but defensively, you know, their their first step quickness and their fast twitch pop um, is just seen in a, a different way. You know, it's a different direction of explosiveness and fast twitchness. Um, same thing with setters, you know, I want them to be able to, um, if we can live in medium and still run a fast offense in medium and they have the first step quickness to get to some of those balls and still be athletic and, and fire the ball around. Um, I think it just shows up in different ways. Um, you know, I, there are some that are not necessarily as explosive and fast twitch, but it still is smooth. Um, and I think again, it, the, the effortlessness is the best way to describe it of, does it look easy for them to move? Um, yeah. because it could be that their vision and their IQ and their reading ability is so good that it looks effortless and it's smooth. And those are skills that are just as important and just as high value as their ability to be explosive and be athletic and fast switch on the court. So um, I think, again, just the effortlessness is something that I always am like, okay, do they make the hard plays look easy? Yeah. Um, you know, is that something that is going to continue to grow over time as as the game speeds up? Yeah. Let me give you a specific example here for recruiting eye. And I, I run into this a lot, too, and I'm sure a lot – a lot of different coaches on all different levels have this situation. So you've got a very physical kid who's very behind from a volleyball standpoint. Maybe they were playing basketball and now they're just joining volleyball their freshman year and you see them sophomore year and their arm is either terrible or they just don't move well. Like you said, they make it look easy. This player makes it look hard, but they are like a physical – they're just a specimen. They're a great-looking athlete. 
Uh, from a recruiting eye standpoint, what separates the ones that you're like, okay, this isn't going to probably pan out for them versus I love this potential and I can see where they're going to go. Is it, you know, you can't teach an arm swing, so they got to have an arm or, you know, just the comfort around the net. I'm thinking more of like an outside middle, someone who's a front row player, but is a project kid, which is the ones that we're going to pass on versus the ones that you're like, I can see the potential here. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think arm swings are hard to fix. <laughs> I have always Almost said that. Almost impossible, um, I would say. They're so hard. It's such an intricate movement that like by the time they're in high school, if they haven't if they haven't got it down, you know, if they weren't playing catch with mom or dad in, in the front yard or, you know, playing little league or doing something that's an overhead motion that they understand it, it's so hard to fix. Um but so arm swing might sure be a deal arm, breaker. Yeah, yeah. Um for sure an arm is is something that, you know, I I, they have to be able to generate power and points where they are in order for me to see that developing down the road. Um, you know, I think if they're not scoring where they are right now, it's hard for me to see them scoring later on as everybody gets more physical balls come faster, you know, tempo picks up. Um, so that's for sure one that I would want to see there. Um, Honestly, the second one for me is more intangibles than anything. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I love that we did at Dayton is we called like probably anywhere from three to five people about kids that we were going to offer. Like if we got down to the nitty gritty of like, yeah, you know, they check the box physically. We like what we've seen on the court. You know, we, we like our interactions with the kid. Um, you know, the, the ultimate, like, Hey, we're going to make this decision to add them to our program or not. Um, we typically would ask for a few references from the kid. And then we would also call people that we knew had connections to the kid too. So it was usually anywhere from like three to five. Um, and we would ask all the intangible questions like, Hey, what's her work ethic? Like what's her competitiveness? Like, you know, what's, what's she like with teammates? What's she like in big moments? You know, have you seen her in big moments? Is she the kid that's taking the swing to win or is she the kid that's, you know, keeping the ball in play? Um, so I think asking people that see them more often than not about the things that you want in the player was kind of the tipping point for us of, you know, if they're raw, but we hear all the things that we need to hear from a lot of different sources about who they are and what their work ethic is like, what their competitiveness is like, then we know that we can ultimately develop them once they get in the gym. Um, as long as the physical skill set is there based on what we're like minimum standard expecting, uh, we know that we can get them where we want to go just based on their willingness and ability to, to be the kid that we need them to be to do that. Love it. Love it. Uh, switching gears just a little more broader on recruiting. What's what's going well right now in recruiting? What do you love about where our sport is? What can we do better? I love how much exposure we're getting. <laughs> I think the fact that, you know, it's on ESPN, the main network um, and in regular season and, um, you know, obviously ACC network, Big Ten network, SEC network, Pac-12 network. You know, there's there's so many different ways for the sport to get exposed. So I think in terms of, of recruiting, recruits are getting exposed to a lot of different universities um, that, quite honestly, was missing from our sport, you know, before. Um, and, and I think their exposure is is showing them styles of play, you know, cultures of teams on TV that they could see themselves playing with. Um, so I think the exposure on, you know, social media and on TV that we're getting is really 
um, expanding the recruiting game and you're seeing kids go from, you know, the West coast all the way over to the East coast. And there's so much more, you know, change of area and region and location, but I think it's truly just because of the exposure of the sport and them getting to see different styles of play and different cultures. Um, I think for me, ultimately, the thing that I, you know, hope and that I always want is just for us on the college coaching side to be about the right things um, and do it the right way, you know. Thanks for listening to Out of Rotation with your host, Dan Meske, presented by the American Volleyball Network. Until next time, come on, don't give them any free points. Always stay in rotation.